You know, I must say uh, this morning as we begin that the singing is beautiful. The singing is beautiful. Uh, it is um, it is enjoyable to participate in, but I want to say to you that just sitting out in the front and hearing it, just listening to it, I've said this before, but it has a special, there's something about hearing that is unique, and to hear it is beautiful, really beautiful. So thank you, Ruth, for the selection. You know, while you were singing one of the hymns this morning, this uh, passage of scripture came to mind, and I want to read it with you as we begin. This is the principle here. This uh, this is given through Isaiah the prophet to the nation of Israel, and yet the principle of this is true, and so it is specifically given to Israel as a nation. And yet if we were to absorb the uh, principle of it, we could take it in a personal way. It says, uh, Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. And it comes to mind when the name Jacob was changed to Israel. And how he was at a place called Peniel. And he had a personal, a personal encounter with God. And he saw him up close and personal. And he wrestled in that place with the messenger of the Lord. You remember as he began to wrestle and he said these words to the to the messenger of the Lord with whom he was wrestling. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until you bless me. And so the idea of the change of the name from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, the one who has struggled with God and man and has prevailed, uh, really goes back to the idea of blessing and struggling to receive the and so Israel as a name means um, the one whom the Lord has blessed, who has um, struggled, who has interceded, who has said, I, I, will not, uh, I, I will not let you go until you bless me. I just can't do anything. I'm just going to stay right here until, I, until you bless me. Um, this is an amazing, amazing thing. I'm thinking of the crucifixion of Messiah, and as he likened it to Moses lifting up the serpent on the stake in the wilderness. And those who looked to it were healed, and there was a certain <coughs> kind of looking that was required. It wasn't just a looking around, but it was a looking to as the only means through which healing could be ministered. Jacob was looking to the messenger of the Lord as the only one through whom the blessing could come. And he would not uh, let him go until the, he was blessed. Then it goes on to say, Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you, fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty. And here comes the spiritual principle. I will pour water on him who is thirsty. Um, you know, Jacob was thirsty. <laughs> Uh, he was thirsty. Are you thirsty? Am I thirsty? Uh, I don't mean thirsty for natural water. Are you thirsty in your spirit for only for that thirst that God gives you and the thirst that only He can quench. He says, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass. Now, you could claim this if you're thirsty. 
And if you're thirsty and you have that same attitude that Jacob had, I will not let you go until you bless me. This is a kind of insistence that is pleasing to the Lord. And then you come to that place, as Jacob did, where you experience that uh, you have prevailed with the Lord and have received the blessing. Then this uh, promise comes. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, I am the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. And so this is a great promise uh, for the descendants of the one whom the Lord will bless. So I would say this morning, look and be healed, would be the words that we could look at this morning. Look and be healed. And looking to Messiah to be healed. I want to, uh, Sherry, if she would begin a little presentation that we have uh, prepared this morning. And the first passage of Scripture is found in Hebrews chapter 1. And it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us uh, in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The last days would be the days from the time of Messiah until now. All, all these days are really the final days or the last days. It says, He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the world. And so the origin of the material universe, the physical universe, comes through the Word of God and comes through Messiah Himself. It says, And He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So everything that has been made in the material universe has been made by him through his word by speaking it into existence. Not only did he make it, but he continues to uphold it by that same word. It says, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he made purification of sins, and this was the reason Messiah came. So we look back to a week ago when we remembered the crucifixion of Jesus, his resurrection, his ascension, which we look forward to um, 40 days later. So when he had made purification of sins, and he had made this way for sins to be forgiven, otherwise it would be impossible for sins to be forgiven. Jacob's sins could not have been forgiven. David's sins could not have been forgiven. Your sins, my sins, could not have been forgiven. This is the importance of becoming a Messiah. Let's go to the next. It says, uh, it says, yeah. It says in Hebrews 11 and 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. By faith we understand this, that the worlds are all material creation, were prepared by the word of God. So they were made and fashioned by God speaking it into existence. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. This is what modern science is saying today as well. 
that what is seen does not have its origin in what is visible. There's an unseen origin to everything that is seen, and yet they are uh, approaching this in the wrong way. It's a very dangerous thing. We look at it at one point in time, and we are encouraged that they're coming to this realization. But at the same time, as you look into it more deeply, it's very evident that cutting-edge science today is still not seeing what's there as presented to us from the Word of God. They know there is an unseen explanation for everything that's visible, but they are attributing that to the wrong to the wrong things. So the scripture says that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Let's go to the next. Now I want to, uh, this morning is Charles Spurgeon's commentary, Morning and Evening, and I'd like to present this to you this morning and uh, discuss it as we, as we proceed. This was written by Spurgeon so many years ago. Um, for this particular time of year, the time of the crucifixion of Messiah and his resurrection. And so on the morning of April the 7th, which is today, and we could remember that as one day after Ethan's birthday. So April the 7th. And this was the passage of scripture that he selected from Psalm 4 and verse 2. It says, O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame. Now these are the words of God speaking to men and saying how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you do this? Now uh, let's go to the next. And it says uh, Spurgeon writes an instructive writer has made a mournful list of the honors which the blinded people of Israel awarded to their long expected king. Now, this is a list of things that happened surrounding the crucifixion of Messiah, how he was received by the people at the time he came, remembering who he really was and is, and how he was treated when he manifested himself among men. Let's look at this list. The first thing is they gave him a procession of honor in which Roman legionnaires, Jewish priests, men and women, took part he himself bearing his cross. This is the triumph which the world awards to him who comes to overthrow men's direst foes. He came to res rescue us from our enemies, and yet he was treated in this way by the majority of human beings. The rise of shouts are his only acclamations, and cruel taunts his only paeans or songs of praise. For the next one. They presented him with the wine of honor. Instead of a golden cup of generous wine, they offered him the criminal stupefying death drop, which he refused because he would preserve an uninjured taste wherewith to taste of death. And afterwards, when he cried, I thirst. See, in this part, they were going to offer him something that would somehow dulled the pain by stupefying his senses, which he refused. And afterwards, when he cried, I thirst, they gave him vinegar mixed with gall, thrust to his mouth upon a sponge. Oh, wretched, detestable inhospitality to the king's son. This is the way he was treated by 
those whom he came to rescue and to redeem and to save from eternal punishment. These are tremendous things. This was written many hundreds of years ago. The third one. He was provided with a guard of honor who showed their esteem of him by gambling over his garments, which they had seized as their booty. Such was the bodyguard of the adored of heaven, a quaternion or a set of four of brutal gamblers. These were the guard of honor. So that speak spoken, of course, with a certain kind of irony in, in the statements. The fourth one. A throne of honor was found for him upon the bloody tree. And yet this is the very tree that is the likeness to the pole lifted up upon which the serpent, the bronze serpent, was made in the wilderness. Those who were afflicted by the bite of the serpent must look upon that um, bronze serpent lifted up on the pole as the only means of their healing, the only means of their rescue. This is the way we must look at Messiah. The throne of honor was found for him upon the bloody tree. No easier place of rest would rebel men yield to their liege lord. The cross was, in fact, the full expression of the world's feeling toward him. There, they seem to say, Thou Son of God, this is the manner in which God himself should be treated. Could we reach him? Now, if you look very carefully and examine this, you'll find and discover that this is exactly the way God is treated to this very day. This is the way Messiah is treated by that vast majority to this very day. It may be even that you and I have treated him in that way at some point in our lives by rejecting him. Yet he is the only means of rescue for us. The fifth one. The title of honor was nominally King of the Jews, but that the blinded nation distinctly repudiated and really called him King of Thieves by preferring Barabbas and by placing Jesus in the place of highest shame between two thieves. His glory was thus in all things turned into shame by the sons of men. Remember Psalm 4 and verse 2, how long will you turn my glory into shame? It says, his glory was thus in all things turned into shame by the sons of men. But it shall yet gladden the eyes of saints and angels, world without end. Does it gladden your eyes? If it gladdens your eyes, you know that you have accepted him and received him. Let's go to the next slide. This was the evening. Uh, this really is the uh, Spurgeon's uh, morning and evening. This is the evening. It says uh, from Psalm 51, verse 14. And I'm going to um, close with this one this morning. And David writing in this psalm, Psalm 51, this is a psalm that David wrote after his great sin with uh, Bathsheba and the killing of her husband Uriah. And David wrote these words. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud 
of thy righteousness. In other words, I will sing, my tongue, I will sing of the praises and the mercies of the Lord. I will sing of the righteousness of the Lord when I have been delivered from my guilt, when my guilt has been removed and taken away. And so he writes again, deliver me from blood guiltiness. In other words, I'm guilty of shedding blood. I'm guilty of murder. I'm guilty of the murder of Uriah. I did not murder him, David would say, with my own hands, but I, he was murdered in my direction. I sent him into a place where I knew it would be certain death for him to go. I intended that his death would occur as a result of my actions and orders, and his death did occur as a direct result, not by my hand, but by my words. And I am guilty of the shedding of his blood. David is saying, I am a murderer. When you think of King David, one of the greatest kings of all Israel, do you ever think of David as a murderer? I don't think we think of him as a murderer because we think of him as someone who was guilty of grave sins, but yet who was forgiven. On what basis was he forgiven? There's only one basis for the forgiveness of sins. There was only one basis for the healing from the bite of the serpent in the Old Testament. And that, of course, was the bronze serpent raised on the stake. The only basis for forgiveness for any sin from the beginning of time until the end of time is the crucifixion, resurrection, a perfect life of Jesus of Nazareth, God made flesh, God in human form, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua, we call him Jesus, the only basis for certain for forgiveness of sins. I would suggest is the only basis for the continuation of the world. After sin originally infected this planet, if it had not been for God's intention to redeem and to become man himself and to redeem the fallen world, I believe that this creation would have ceased to exist. This planet would have ceased to exist. And if you analyze it, look very carefully at it, I believe you will find that there is good reason for making that, uh, that statement. He is um, not just an incidental person in history. He is the centerpiece of all history. Time is reckoned up to his coming. Time is reckoned from his coming. And so David wrote these words, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. Thou God, thou provider of my salvation. And then my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Sing aloud. Not just singing in the shower, but singing everywhere. Singing loudly from my heart. Not to be heard of men. The idea of praising God is not to be heard of men. The idea of praising God is to recognize his sovereignty, really to be heard of him. And if men should overhear it, then so be it. But it's not done for men. And to do it for men would be to dishonor God completely. Then we come to the next. In this solemn confession, it is pleasing to observe that David plainly names his sin. He does not call it manslaughter, nor speak of it as an imprudence by which an unfortunate accident occurred, 
to a worthy man. But he calls it by its true name, blood guiltiness. He did not actually kill the husband of Bathsheba, but still it was planned in David's heart that Uriah should be slain, and he was before the Lord, his murderer. Learn in confession to be honest with God. Here's the key we want to close with this morning. Since the provision has been made for our justification, that we can be considered before God, not before men, but we can be considered before God rightfully innocent, pure, uh, forgiven, on the basis of the work of Christ. And so it said, learn in confession to be honest with God. This is the key. Now, if Christ provided for you or me forgiveness for a certain sin, this is really important. If he provided for you and for me, and he has forgiveness for a certain sin or sins, and you can think of the things, even though it's not pleasurable to think of these things, but you can think of the things and the ways in which you have transgressed God's laws in your life. We need to think of them. Then after having thought of them and remembered them and recalled them, and sometimes this is a process, not all at one time, then we say, I have or I am guilty of such, I am guilty of such and such. David said, I am guilty of murder. He was forgiven in the cross of Christ, yet future to him. He was forgiven for the offense of murder. But if he had not said murder, then the merits or the benefits of that forgiveness would not have come to him. Can you follow that? See, we have to confess our sins. We have to confess what we have done, not something else. Calling it by a different name would be to confess something else. So if the forgiveness has been given for murder, and we say, I'm guilty of manslaughter, and we have not received the forgiveness of murder. And so he said, learn in confession to be honest with God. Do not give fair names to foul sins. Call them what they, you will. They will smell no sweeter. What God sees them to be, that do you labor to feel them to be. And with all openness of heart, acknowledge their real character. This is very important because the forgiveness will not come until we have done this. Observe that David was evidently oppressed with the heinousness of his sin. It is easy to use words, but it is difficult to feel their meaning. The 51st Psalm is the photograph of a contrite spirit. Let us seek after the like brokenness of heart. For however excellent our words may be, if our heart is not conscious of the hell deservingness of sin, this is what is missing in science. The moral character. The provision for sin. It's missing and that's what makes it so completely dangerous in its findings because it's not there. It's not there. If our heart is not conscious of the hell deservingness of sin, we cannot expect to find forgiveness. And I say amen a hundred, a thousand times amen. That's exactly what it's for. Exactly what it is. 
So it's not a bad thing then to be conscious of our sins and transgressions before God. It's a wonderful gift to see them clearly so that we can confess them clearly and receive the forgiveness already provided. Our text has in it an earnest prayer. It is addressed to the God of salvation. It is his prerogative to forgive. It is his very name and office to save those who seek his face. Better still, the text calls him the God of my salvation. Yes, blessed be his name. While I am yet going to him through Jesus' blood, I can rejoice in the God of my salvation. The psalmist ends with a commendable vow. If God will deliver him, he will sing. Nay more, he will sing aloud. <laughs> Who can sing in any other style of such a mercy as this? But note the subject of the psalm. Thy righteousness. I will sing of thy righteousness. We must sing of the finished work of a precious Savior. And he who knows most of forgiving love will sing the loudest. Amen. And so as we close this morning with a song that Ruth selects, then probably we could say, let's sing loudly. Let's sing from the bottom of our heart.
We're thinking of Ethan and his birthday today. And we ask for a great blessing on you, Ethan, as you go forward into this really a new stage in your educational career. And we just pray, Lord, will guard you and keep you. We saw this in you when you were a little boy. It's being uh, matured now in the young man. We're so thankful for you. We're thankful for all you young people, each and every one of you. We love you. We ask the Lord's blessing to be upon you. Let's sing verse 1. Close with the Lord. Thank you.